Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a hard cider. What are you having, Jenny? I'm drinking a mimosa, and in this episode, we're going to explore the double murder of Jose and Kitty Menendez committed by their sons, Lyle and Eric. And this episode will heavily feature talk about child sexual abuse. Just keep that in mind. Jose Enrique Menendez was born on May 6, 1944 in Havana, Cuba. At age 16, shortly after the start of the Cuban Revolution, he immigrated to the United States. Jose attended Southern Illinois University, where he met Mary Louise Kitty Anderson, a beauty pageant queen. They married in 1963 and moved to New York City, where Jose earned an accounting degree from Queens College. The couple's first son, Joseph Lyle, was born on January 10, 1968. Following his birth, Kitty quit her teaching job and the family moved to New Jersey. Two years later, Eric was born on November 27, 1970. The boys attended a private school in Princeton. Jose was known as a hard-driving father who put immense pressure on his sons to succeed in athletics, academics, and everything else. Eric's former swim coach would later say that Jose's tendency to be overbearing caused Eric to be, quote, so much less self-confident because everything he did was never good enough, end quote. After leading the U.S. operations of car rental company Hertz, Jose spent the early 80s as the head of RCA Records and had a hand in the signing of bands like Duran Duran, The Arrhythmics, and Menudo. He and Kitty regularly attended the Grammy Awards. In 1986, the family moved to Beverly Hills, California for Jose's job as a corporate executive with Film Studio International Video Entertainment, now known as Artisan Entertainment. His friends in the music business included Rick Springfield, Barry Manilow, and Kenny Rogers. Lyle attended Princeton University where he played on the tennis team, but was eventually suspended for plagiarism. He remained living in Princeton following the suspension. Eric attended and graduated from Beverly Hills High School and was a star tennis player as well. In 1988, he took part in a string of burglaries. He avoided jail time, but attended court-ordered therapy with Dr. Jerome Oziel, who had been recommended to the family. However, at the time, Dr. Oziel was on a five-year probation for unethical conduct. On Jose's request, Dr. Oziel had Eric sign waivers of the confidentiality agreement between patient and doctor so that the doctor could share what he learned with Jose and Kitty. On the night of August 20th, 1989, Kitty and Jose were in the den of their Beverly Hills home when they were murdered by then 21-year-old Lyle and 18-year-old Eric. 45-year-old Jose was shot six times, including the fatal shot in the back of the head with the Mossberg 12-gauge shotgun. 47-year-old Kitty was shot 10 times in total. Before the fatal shot to her cheek, she was on the ground, slowly crawling and moaning. Lau then ran to his car to reload and then fired the fatal shot to her face. Immediately after the killings, both brothers remained in the house expecting the police to respond due to the noise of the gunshots. They then got in the car and dumped the guns somewhere off Mulholland Drive, then threw the spent shotgun shells and their bloody clothes in a dumpster at a gas station. 
They brought movie tickets in Century City for a film they didn't see, then went to Santa Monica, where they tried to find one of Lyle's friends who could serve as an alibi. Unable to find the guy, they drove back home. At 11.47 p.m., Lyle called 911, sobbing to the dispatcher, quote, somebody killed my parents, end quote. The officers who responded to the 911 call found Eric in hysterics on the lawn before entering the crime scene. The police did not seek gunshot residue tests from the brothers, which would have indicated whether they had recently discharged a firearm. They told police that they left home that night to see the new James Bond movie, License to Kill. When they found it sold out, they went to Batman instead. Afterwards, they said they went to the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium to attend the annual Taste of LA Food Festival. They claimed to have arrived home shortly before midnight and found the driveway gate unlocked and the front door open. In the den next to a coffee table holding half-eaten bowls of fresh berries and cream lay the bodies of their parents. During the start of the investigation, police tried to find out who would have a motive to kill Kitty and Jose and looked into potential mob leads and business rivals. Following the murders of their mom and dad, Lyle and Eric spent excessive amounts of money on luxury goods, business ventures, and exotic vacations. Lyle brought Chuck's Spring Street Cafe, a Buffalo Wing restaurant in Princeton, New Jersey, as well as a Rolex watch and a Porsche Carrera. Eric hired a full-time tennis coach and competed in a series of tournaments in Israel. The brothers eventually left the Beverly Hills mansion unoccupied and moved into adjoining condominiums in nearby Marina del Rey. They also ate expensive meals and went on trips to the Caribbean and London. They even attended a New York Knicks basketball game, which became immortalized when they appeared courtside in the background of a Mark Jackson trading card. As their investigation went on, law enforcement began to suspect that the brothers were the most likely perpetrators due to the obvious financial motive and their exorbitant spending after the killings. Jose was worth $14 million at the time of his death, and within six months, the brothers spent an estimated $700,000 of his fortune. There was also a $5 million life insurance policy on their father, though technicality stopped them from collecting. In an attempt to get a confession from Eric, the police arranged for his friend Craig Signorelli to wear a wire during a lunch with Eric at a local beachfront restaurant. But when Signorelli asked Eric whether he had killed his parents, Eric denied it. Eric eventually confessed to Dr. Oziel, telling the doctor that he had been inspired to commit the murders after watching the movie Billionaire Boys Club, in which a group of Beverly Hills boys murdered two people, including one of their fathers. Dr. Oziel told his then-mistress, Judalon Smythe. The therapy sessions continued, and Oziel ultimately got both Eric and Lyle on tape, confessing to the murders. Eric said they'd done it to their mother, quote-unquote, out of her misery, as she would not be able to live without their father, while Eric, while Lyle made it clear that they were both in on the crime. Oziel later broke up with Smythe, and in a fit of rage to get back at him, she told the police about the brothers' involvement. Lyle was arrested on March 8, 1990, and Eric turned himself in three days later after returning to Los Angeles from Israel. Both were held without bail and kept separate from each other. Their family and friends were stunned by the arrests. 
In August 1990, Judge James Albrecht ruled that tapes of the conversations between Eric and Oziel were admissible evidence since Oziel stated that Lyle allegedly threatened him and violated doctor-patient privilege. Albrecht's ruling was appealed, after which the proceedings were delayed for two years. The Supreme Court of California ruled in August 1992 that most of the tapes were admissible, with the exception of the tape on which Eric was recorded discussing the murders. After that decision, a Los Angeles County grand jury issued indictments in December 1992, charging the brothers with the murders of their parents. The L.A. County District Attorney's Office said it would seek the death penalty. The trials began in 1993. Court TV, a relatively new network at the time, started broadcasting the trial, causing it to become a national sensation. Prosecutors painted the Menendez brothers as greedy, spoiled brats who were after their inheritance since shortly before he was killed, Jose reportedly discussed plans to write his sons out of his will, which prosecutors cited as a motive for the murders. Leslie Abramson headed up the defense for Eric, while Jill Lansing was lead defense attorney for Lyle. Oziel, who served as a main witness for the prosecution, told the court that the brothers felt that they had committed the quote-unquote perfect crime and that they got pleasure from the murders. The defense team claims Jose was emotionally abusive, but they also alleged he had molested the brothers for years. Lyle from the ages of 6 to 8 and Eric from the age of 6 to 18, a claim that shocked the nation. Their cousin, Andy Kano, took the stand to back up their claims of abuse, as did another cousin, Diane Vandermolen. Vandermolen, who lived with the Menendez family during summers in her youth, testified at the time that Lyle had told her about the alleged abuse in 1976 when he was only eight and asked to sleep in her room because his father was touching him. She claimed to have then told Kitty what he said, but she took her husband's side and said Lyle was lying. Vandermolen recalls that afterward, Kitty put Lyle upstairs, and that was the last time she heard anything about it. According to testimony, Jose was an emotionally distant and demanding father with a short temper who quickly turned to physical violence to discipline his sons. Eric's defense argued that the two were acting in self-defense after growing up in such a violent and traumatizing home. Lyle who gave graphic testimony of his father's alleged behavior, also said he had confronted Jose about sexually assaulting Eric days before the murders, and he took his father's angry response as a death threat. The defense also portrayed Kitty as a shell of a woman who struggled with alcoholism and drug addiction. The broken wife and useless mother, they said, was devastated by Jose's many affairs. The brothers also allege their mother, Kitty, was aware of the abuse from their father, but did nothing to stop it and that she also partook in their sexual abuse. The trials lasted six months and the brothers were tried simultaneously, but with separate juries. Both resulted in hung juries who were unable to agree on whether Lyle and Eric were guilty of murder or acting in their own self-defense. Immediately, it was announced that they would be retried together. The second trial took place in 1995 and was far less sensational, as Judge Stanley Weisberg did not allow TV cameras into the courtroom. The judge also ruled that there was insufficient evidence that Jose had abused his sons, which was central to the defense's claim that the brothers had killed out of fear. This time, Eric testified, but Lau did not. Judalyn Smythe, 
testifying for the defense during the second trial, insisting that Dr. Oziel had manipulated the brothers into confessing. The effort fell short. Both Lau and Eric were convicted of two counts of first-degree murder on March 21, 1996. They were sentenced to life without parole, each receiving two consecutive life terms that July. Despite their sentences and heinous crimes, there has been a consistent outcry from supporters who believe the brothers were truly victims and deserve to be freed. This continues today with TikTok users making videos about their attraction to or support of the brothers. In 2005, the case reached a federal appeals court, which refused to grant the Menendez brothers a new trial. Lau and Eric were sent to separate prisons until 2018 when they were reunited after 20 years and allowed to serve their sentences at the same facility and housing unit in San Diego. Journalist Robert Rand, who has covered the case since 1989, told a &E True Crime that the brothers console other inmates who have suffered sexual abuse and that Eric leads multiple self-help groups. Eric married his pen pal, Tammy Sackleman, in 1999. She wrote a book about their relationship. They said, we never make it my life with Eric Menendez in 2005. Lau married Anna Erickson, a former model who divorced him when she found out that he had been writing to other women, and then Rebecca Seed, a journalist turned attorney who he wed in 2003. Lau told People in 2017 that he and Rebecca tried to talk every day on the phone. The murders have been the subject of numerous books, TV shows, movies, and documentaries, several of which the brothers have been part of. In 2017, Steve Brill, one of the creators of Court TV, told Rolling Stone, quote, the Menendez trials probably had the effect, maybe good, maybe bad, of demonstrating that even if you didn't have a celebrity, if the circumstances were dramatic enough, people will be captivated. We've had lots of trials like that since, but that was really the one that proved that people would be interested in watching big trials, end quote. In 2023, the docuseries Menendez and Menudo, Boys Betrayed, Menudo member Roy Rossello also accused Jose of drugging and raping him several times as a teenager in the mid-1980s. Rossello shared the assaults in a sworn declaration in an exhibit filed with the habeas petition. That same year, the Menendez brothers filed a petition to vacate their convictions or permit discovery and evidentiary hearing based on new evidence supporting their earlier testimonies that Jose sexually abused them. The evidence include Rossello's allegations and a letter Eric wrote to their cousin, Andy Cano, who we did mention was part of the trial that was found in 2018 by their aunt, Marta Cano. In the letter, which was written in December 1988, just eight months before the murders, Eric said, quote, I've been trying to avoid dad. It's still happening, Andy, but it's worse for me now, end quote. He goes on to write, quote, he's so overweight that I can't stand to see him. I never know when it's going to happen and it's driving me crazy. Every night I stay up thinking he might come in. I need to put it out of my mind. I know what you said before, but I'm afraid. You just don't know dad like I do. He's crazy. He's warned me a hundred times about telling anyone, especially Lyle. Am I a serious wimpus? I don't know I'll make it through this. I can handle it, Andy. I need to stop thinking about it. End quote. 
A review of court records shows the letter was not presented at either of the two trials. The attorneys argue these two pieces of evidence counters prosecutors' narrative that Jose Menendez was not violent or the type of person who would abuse children. The Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office told CNN in a statement, quote, We have received the habeas petition and the Menendez matter, and it's currently under review, end quote. Del, what are your thoughts on the Menendez brothers' case and their story? I think I definitely agree with Steve Brill, where, you know, he's talking about how just captivating this case is, especially since it's the classic example of we have one set of people who made it out of this situation alive and we're only hearing their side and it may or may not be true. I definitely remember this case and it's one of those things where the more you learn about it, the more I can understand why the first set of juries were hung and didn't know which side they wanted to take. I think that while I can understand where they're coming from, you know, if they were abused, if they lashed out. I do think that we need to be careful with how those type of what can be termed self-defense cases are looked at. Because for me, it's one thing if in the heat of the moment, Something happens, but I just have a hard time when there is a separation in time between when the violent act happened and when the retaliatory killing happened to say, well, these two things are definitely connected and the murder is then justified in a way where that person, you know, should not be held legally responsible. And I think one of the biggest things that really does not help the Menendez brothers in how they are portraying the crime happen is everything that surrounded the murder. The fact that they were looking for an alibi, the fact that when they called the police, they said, somebody killed my parents. Why wouldn't you say we killed our parents in that initial phone call, if it was something that you felt was justified due to threats that were allegedly made prior to that. It just doesn't make much sense. The fact that they essentially clamped up the crime scene, threw away their clothes, threw away the shells, those are, for me, are not the actions of individuals who feel like their actions had a just reason. Um, And then you have their post-murder activities. The fact that they were spending an excessive amount of money galleranting around town, international trips. You can definitely say that people grieve in different ways, but again, it just goes back to would a reasonable person act like this if they had just killed their parents because of alleged abuse and in the case of their mom, not stopping it, not stepping in. Is that reasonable? I personally don't really think it is. And when it comes to the question of will they get a new trial or be released? 
I think it depends on the judge and how the judge looks at the new evidence, including the testimony from the band member, whether the new judge believes the claims of abuse is going to be a key point. I'm definitely interested to see where this case goes. But at this point, I think the likelihood that they're going to be released or granted a new trial is slim. What are your thoughts? It's such a complex case. And I feel like I've gone so back and forth with like my feelings about them. I do think they are victims of their dad and their mom. Even like sexual abuse aside, it sounds like a horrible household to grow up in. Um, just incredibly stressful. You can't ever make any kind of mistake or like one of your parents is going to blow up at you for something. Um, no child should grow up like that. And I feel like because of that, it's kind of hard to get a sense of who Lyle and Eric are because there are a lot of claims about them, like being really difficult to play tennis with. Like they would always complain when they didn't get their way. And kind of being like the spoiled brats that the prosecution did talk about. But I guess it's hard to know because when you do live under abuse, you kind of take, if you can get any kind of control, like if you take it where you can get it, and that does obviously affect a person's mindset and personality. So even though I I think they are victims of their father, I'm not saying that they're also like wonderful people outside of it. And I mean, obviously, like, I don't know them. Um, I don't want to speak ill of people who were abused. But I think there is understandable, like, reasoning why people would call them spoiled brats. And also, they have shared, you were kind of talking about this, Del, they've shared so many different, like, accounts of what happened the night or like leading up to the murders and like kind of what went into the planning. And I do agree. I think it is tough when it's not like that traditional, like I'm immediately in danger and I need to take action to defend my life. It does seem more like, well, it is more of our dad threatened us and we're scared. Whether that threat was real to them, it seemed like it was in whatever this paranoid victim and I don't want to say victim mentality, but this paranoid, fearful mentality they had and these feelings they had towards their dad. I know that when they've been asked before, like, why didn't you say anything to anyone? They've said like, our dad was really powerful and we didn't know what he was ever going to do, which I can definitely understand. And I've seen like prison guards be interviewed about them and they do They also kind of agree with the whole, like, not necessarily spoiled brat kind of thing, but like, they really like attention. And obviously, they've gotten attention from this case. But so I think that's very complicated, because I think you could argue like, yes, I want media attention on this case, because we need to, the public needs to look at this case differently. Prosecution needs to look at this case differently. And also, like, I want to talk about sexual abuse differently. So I can understand them wanting to sort of clear their name in a way, but I also can see why people think it comes off as like people that don't give a shit that they just killed their parents. And Lyle and Eric have said they have remorse. Take that with what you will. I think this is, it's such an interesting case. There's so much involved. Even just, we'll talk more about doctor-patient privilege, but like 
the role that that played in this case is really interesting. And I do agree, Dell. If I was a juror, I don't know like what I would really, what I'd think. I feel like the prosecution's case of like them wanting the money is maybe a little weak just because like they already did have some money. So I don't know. It's interesting to see where this has gone and how vocal, you know, supporters of them have been from day one. Going forward, I don't know what to think. Maybe they would get a new trial. I don't really know if they would be released just because I guess the question of like their mom, because people, I have heard various things about whether she did abuse them or not, because some articles don't mention it. But I mean, during their testimony, during the trial, they did, at least one of the brothers said that their mom did sexually abuse them. But I feel like a lot of people, when they look at this case, they just think like, well, did Kitty really have to die if Jose was like the perpetrator of the abuse? So I can see that maybe being like a something that the law gets hung up on. I guess if you look at it from like a modern point, if this happened now, people obviously, not obviously, but people are a little more sympathetic to claims of abuse. And it's something that's more talked about, which we'll get into. But I guess now if this happened, do you think they would receive a lighter sentence than what they did in the 90s? Absolutely. I think that the alleged abuse would be used as a mitigating factor and they would likely at least be eligible for a parole. Yeah, I, I agree too. It's interesting to think about and it it is really interesting. I feel like we've talked about this a ton, but like all these high profile cases from the 90s, people really are re-examining them and just seeing how in this short period of time, like our culture has really changed and how law has changed how people prosecute has changed. And I think that's really, it's really fascinating. The trial's graphic talk of incest and sexual abuse against young boys made the case even more shocking. Boys being sexually abused was not commonly talked about at that time, and the attitudes around abuse have since changed. Researchers have found that at least one in six men have experienced sexual abuse or assault before the age of 18. However, the number is likely higher as men are less likely to disclose this information than women. Researchers use sexual abuse to describe experiences in which children are subjected to unwanted sexual contact involving force, threats, or a large age difference between the child and the other person. Only 16% of men with documented histories of sexual abuse by social service agencies consider themselves to have been sexually abused, compared to 64% of women with documented histories in the same study. According to Prevent Child Abuse America, sexual abuse of boys is common, underreported, underrecognized, and undertreated. Sexual abuse of girls has been widely studied, leading to awareness of the risk factors and prevalence. Boys are less likely than girls to report sexual abuse because of fear, the social stigma against homosexual behavior, the desire to appear self-reliant, and the concern for loss of independence. Furthermore, evidence suggests that one in every three incidents of child sexual abuse are not remembered by the adults who experienced them, and that the younger the child was at the time of the abuse and the closer the relationship to the abuser, the more likely one is that the child would not be able to recall the event. 
Boys at highest risk for sexual abuse are those younger than 13 years of age who are non-white, are of low socioeconomic status, and who are not living with their fathers. One study also suggests that boys with disabilities are also at increased risk. Family factors may also contribute, including living with only one or neither parent, parental divorce, separation or remarriage, parental alcohol abuse, and parental criminal behavior. Sexually abused boys are more likely than non-abused boys to have other family members who are also sexually or physically abused. According to the website One in Six, quote, everyone absorbs the myth that males aren't victims to some extent. It's central to masculine gender socialization and boys pick up on it very early in life. The myth implies that a boy or man who has been sexually abused or used will never be a real man. Our society expects males to be able to protect themselves. Successful men are depicted as neither being vulnerable, either physically or emotionally, end quote. According to Rain, the Rape and Incest National Network, some of the common experiences shared by men and boys who have survived sexual assault include anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, flashbacks and eating disorders, concerns, or questions about sexual orientation, fear of the worst happening and having a sense of a shortened future, feeling like, quote unquote, less of a man or that you no longer have control over your own body, withdrawal from relationships or friendships and an increased sense of isolation, and worrying about disclosing for fear of judgment or disbelief. Many questioned the Menendez brothers' claims of abuse, including some friends and others who were close to the family. Case prosecutor Pamela Bozenich said, quote, I'm 100% sure that they fabricated their defense. Noted true crime writer Dominic Dunn has said they made up the defense in order to save themselves. People wanted to know why Eric was suddenly so comfortable disclosing to basically the whole world the graphic details of the alleged abuse he suffered at the hands of his father when he was supposedly so ashamed before the murder that he didn't tell his friends, his brother, or his therapist. In a 2017 interview with A&E, Stuart Hart, an educational child psychologist and professor who served as an expert witness for the defense, said he believed the brother's claims of abuse due to, quote, the consistency of the reporting of it and the details of the reporting and the consistency of those details and the fact that this is humiliating, end quote. In an interview with Rosie O'Donnell, Lau told her that the trial may have ended differently if the trial had happened today. He said, quote, there was no internet. There was no contacting friends. There was no school counselor asking what's going on at home. No one knew there was a problem with sex abuse with boys. Nobody asked those questions. There was just no cultural mechanism to believe or to understand what was going on, end quote. ABC News journalist Terry Morin said, quote, the passage of time changes everything. People were so angry at the Menendez brothers for claiming abuse. They just didn't want to hear it. I always said if the Menendez brothers were the Menendez sisters, they'd be free today because people can understand that girls are touched by men, including sometimes their fathers. People don't want to believe that about boys, end quote. We would like to share the National Telephone Hotline for all survivors of sexual abuse at 800-656-HOPE. That is 800-656-4673. Visit online.rain.org 
for Rain's anonymous and confidential chat. Del, do you have any thoughts on any of the statistics we just talked about on sexual abuse, where our culture was at the time? And what do you think about Terry Moran saying that if they were the Menendez sisters, things would be different? I think that it continues to be an issue. I think that we still, as a society, do not view male sexual abuse and female sexual abuse in the same way. And I absolutely agree with Terry Moran that they would be free if they were sisters. I think that, unfortunately, in addition to some of the behaviors, people the jury likely did not want to believe the Menendez brothers. I think that it connects to the concept of the perfect victim. Like the juries were looking at it. Can I imagine this event happening? And their thoughts were, well, no, I can't. And so they convicted them, which I don't think would have happened if they were females. I think that when you look at the automatic belief People look and say, we talked about, well, men can't be hurt. You know, men can't be abused. If you're actually a man, you should be able to, I guess, you know, ward off any negative thing that can happen to you. And we obviously know that that's not true. And I think that the whole concept of to be a man, you have to be this stoic figure that is able to just puff your chest out and walk into any room and control it has been mentally, physically uh, damaging to males, especially those that are victimized. I mean, if you look at it where it says that only 16% with documented histories, like it's not even, you know, looking at the broader public as people with documented histories, only 16% of men consider themselves to have been abused versus 64% of women. That's the type of stats that you think would cause a national conversation, even more so than the still limited one that we are having today in this country. It's something where Men and boys need to be empowered to know that just like if you are a female, this is not your fault. This doesn't change who you are as a person. And just like there are resources that encourage female survivors, I think there should be those same resources available for boys and men. What about you? I completely agree. I think the way Terry Moran worded it, I I agree with him as well, just saying how time has changed. Of course, it hasn't changed completely everything where we as a society 100% support and understand victims and survivors, but a lot has changed culturally. And the fact that people were angry about it is interesting. And I, I feel like we do see people angry and uh, immediately, you know, if a woman comes forward, we do hear some people angry saying like, they're just saying that they just want to take this man down. He probably dumped them and they want revenge, something like that. So for this, for, you know, two young men to be talking about sexual abuse, that was really like something that wasn't talked about at the time. I could definitely see people, you know, with their cognitive dissonance, you know, thinking, 
well, what is this? They're just lying. Poor little rich boy kind of thing. I do agree that if they were the Menendez sisters, they would have probably served some time or maybe I can't even say that. Honestly, they might not have. I do think the case still would have been as shocking and like attention getting as it was just because of the power and, you know, the wealth and the details, but it is interesting. And Lyle's quote, I think is interesting too, about how like they didn't necessarily feel safe bringing it up. And it really does upset me how, they when they did bring it up to friends or to family i guess more so family and their cousin even tried to say like you know like aunt kitty this is what lyle just told me and it didn't work out for them like as a child they were doing the right thing like telling someone about what was going on to them and it's you know nothing came from it that's really upsetting for me to hear we've kind of talked about this in some way with having with like the Johnny Gosh case and just people not talking about like how to keep children safe or like predators in your community and how they do go after boys to not even have to not feel like you have any support is so sad um, to think of. And that is obviously something that does still happen in today's society. So please, if this is going on with you or anyone, you know, there are resources we just shared too here. I think Rain is a really great resource. One in six does seem like a really great um, tool too to help men and boys who have been victimized to overcome what they've gone through. Please, if you're ashamed, there's no reason to be, you know, you did not bring any of this on yourself. Like, please just get support. And, you know, I just wish healing for everyone on this. It is... Like the quote with one in six too, just how truly everybody absorbs the idea that men are a certain way. You have to be like the aggressor, especially with sex. You need to be strong. You can't show any emotion. I feel like we're finally starting to move away from that, but it's obviously something that's going to take some time. It's, I mean, generations worth of people acting like that, centuries worth of people being told to act a certain way. Um, It's definitely not an easy feat to overcome any of that. The brothers' trial also brought into question how far doctor-patient privilege can go. Doctor-patient or therapist-patient privilege is a legal concept that refers to the protection of confidential communication between a doctor and their patient. This privilege aims to encourage open and honest communication between patients and healthcare providers, ensuring that patients feel comfortable sharing sensitive information without fear that it will be disclosed to others. It also covers a doctor's inability to give out medical information to third parties without the patient's consent. The duty of confidentiality continues after a patient stops medical treatment with the doctor and even survives the death of a patient. Examples of confidential information in medical records include personal identification information, medical history, diagnoses, treatment plans, medications prescribed, test results, notes from therapy sessions, conversations about personal, social, or family issues related to a patient's health. However, there are some exceptions to this rule. They include issues about health insurance, if confidential information is at issue in a lawsuit, or if a patient or client plans to cause immediate harm to others. 
The therapist-patient privilege covers statements by patients to their treatment providers during therapy. It generally applies to statements in the context of diagnosis and treatment. It does not apply to conversations outside the therapy context. Most states have an exception to the therapist-patient privilege for dangerous patients, often referred to as the Tarasov duty. In 1969, a graduate student at UC Berkeley killed a fellow student and romantic interest. The parents of the victim, Tatiana Tarasov, sued the regents of the University of California, among others, for failing to adequately protect their daughter. The parents alleged that two months before the murder, the psychiatric staff at UCB's hospital had the graduate student taken into police custody for hospitalization after he told his therapist that he planned on killing an unspecified young woman who could have easily been identified as Tatiana. The parents claimed that the police officers released the man and that no one notified them of their daughter's potential danger. In the first ruling of its kind, the California Supreme Court held that a psychotherapist who determines or should determine that a patient poses a serious danger to another must use reasonable care to protect the potential victim. Several other states adopted the Tarasoff rule, and the California legislature wrote it into law in 1985. Depending on the jurisdiction, the exception either allows or requires therapists to report statements by patients that indicate dangerousness. The law might, for instance, say that therapists must disclose statements when the patient presents at risk of serious harm to others and disclosure is necessary to prevent that harm. Although California law protects the confidentiality of most patient-therapist relationships, it makes an exception where there is a threat of violence. And like we had said, the brothers had allegedly threatened Dr. Oziel, so there was no more doctor-patient privilege because of that. The therapist's required course of action can depend on the circumstances and can involve notifying the potential victim, the police, or both. For instance, if a patient tells her psychiatrist that she plans on shooting her ex-boyfriend, the psychiatrist may have to notify the police and warn the former lover. If the patient is sufficiently mentally ill, the therapist may be required to initiate involuntary commitment proceedings. In some instances, once the duty to warn has arisen and the therapist has divulged the patient's statements, those statements may be used at trial. State law can, however, allow the therapist to warn but prevent him or her from testifying at any eventual trial. Several courts have held that the duty to warn is distinct from the admissibility of the patient's statements in court, that a therapist must still warn of a dangerous patient but may not testify about the statements causing the warning. In some cases, a violation of doctor-patient privilege can result in criminal liability. Again, it depends on jurisdiction and regulations. In many cases, a breach of this privilege may lead to disciplinary action by medical boards, civil lawsuits, and danger to the healthcare provider's professional reputation. In certain circumstances, healthcare providers are legally obligated to break confidentiality, such as when reporting cases of child abuse, elder abuse, or if a patient poses an imminent threat to themselves or others, as we've said. Del, any thoughts on doctor-patient privilege and you know how it came about in this case? I definitely think that in terms of making sure that individuals are able to receive the care that they need, it's one of the most important things. You definitely 
want to make sure that individuals don't hold back information from their doctors and other people that are providing them with care in fear that that information is going to be used against them. When it comes to the exceptions, I definitely understand them in their limited context. I do worry that, especially in the context of mental health and therapy, that if there is a way where therapists can testify against someone and one statement breaks confidentiality entirely, I think that it's probably not the right way to go. I definitely understand if they are sharing statements that are relevant to whatever situation that the confidentiality is going to be broken, but having it be just a wide swath doesn't seem reasonable to me. And also what I don't feel is reasonable is the threat of violence being able to break confidentiality. I can understand a therapist terminating their relationship with the patient. I can definitely understand if a, you know, involuntary commitment may come out of that threat of violence. But for me, I honestly don't see a reasonable connection between making a threat to a therapist and that therapist being able to testify against you in a criminal trial. I don't think that's fair. And again, I don't think that it's reasonable. How about you? I do think that's really interesting, especially like I didn't see any other cases of that as I was looking into things. Not to say that like Lyle is the only person that's ever threatened a therapist, but I also found that interesting that that is the reason why there was no more doctor-patient privilege. I also think it's interesting in this case in particular that So much of what they told the doctor was included, especially because he's not the one that told police. His mistress is the one that told the police what he knew and their confession. So I guess it is kind of questionable. And he seems like a very corrupt person, this Dr. Oziel. It is, I think, an interesting element of the case. And like we said, it this argument, like the state did not take this lightly and it delayed the case for around two years or it delayed the trial for two years. So def- very interesting. I've never heard of the tar Tarasoff duty, but I mean, I think it's rightfully so. It does need to be in place. I guess telling law enforcement, I feel like would be the biggest thing. Of course, like the victim should know, but I feel like maybe law enforcement should be the one telling them instead of just a therapist, because I guess maybe people could take that less seriously. But I thought all of this was kind of interesting to learn about, especially, I feel like this comes up in like a lot of movies. Like I can think if anyone's seen Donnie Darko, I know there's a lot of scenes with his therapist and you never really know, you know, like what's the truth compared to like what's shown in a movie. But I guess we all, we usually often hear about this with like you know, like a fit, a physical medical doctor as opposed to like a therapist or a psychiatrist. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I love Law and Order and that those series of shows. And this is something that does come up often, you know, the question of privilege and not just doctor patient privilege, although that is a very common one. You also have attorney client privilege. You have spousal privilege. And I agree, it's really interesting 
because it's that fine line of making sure that people are able to have those types of relationships where they feel comfortable speaking without the kind of looming threat that this person can share that information, but also trying to make sure that if there's going to be a serious threat imposed to the public, that the public is aware of that and able to protect themselves. So yeah, again, it's really interesting. And each state is going to treat it differently. And I think it will be something that continues to come up in these types of cases, because honestly, there's no right or wrong answer in this. If you look at it, it just all depends on the individual circumstances of the case. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the Menendez brothers. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on the vampire. As always, stay safe.